Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, John Mead joins me, and we talk about the development of the biblical canon. What are the early canon lists look like? What are some of the early church fathers say about what the Bible is? And how can we trust the Bible that we have today? As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this English translation. And now my conversation with John Mead, but first, no big deal. John Mead is here. John, uh, this is actually your second appearance on Church Grammar, but those who uh, who listen may not know that because we had a recording problem and uh, never never existed as far as we're concerned. So welcome back. <laughs> Great to be back here, Brandon. All right. So we're going to talk through uh, John uh, works with Peter Gurry at Phoenix Seminary and the Texan and Canon Institute, uh, writes a lot on canon stuff, has a, has a book out recently. Uh, it's with Oxford Press, right, on early early canon lists. Um, and then you and uh, Peter as well have a book coming out with Crossway later this year about how we got our Bible, right? So uh, if I'm going to talk to somebody uh, about these issues on how we got our Bible and the, the, some, some of the diversity of canon lists and things like that, I think, John, you're the, you're the guy. So uh, let's start out with this. Um, what is a canon list? And uh, why is it important to help us understand kind of where our Bible came from in light of that? Great. Yeah, a canon list uh, we could define it as um, uh, the list of authoritative books, um, uh, and it's written by usually a person or or a small regional council. Okay, so so this is the list of authoritative scriptural books uh, uh, drafted by an individual, like say Athanasius of Alexandria, or or a synod like that happened at Laodicea. Okay, so. Uh, simplest definition I can I can come up with. Uh, when I'm on the street, I like to say that these are the earliest tables of contents uh, for for a Bible. You know, so um, if someone wanted to know uh, what the canonical scriptures were, uh, you would consult one of these lists. Okay, um, much like today, if, if I, I saw my daughter yesterday at church, she was trying to find the book of Colossians and she was quick to go to the table of contents and she would have found 66 books there and she had to kind of scan through it and, and found where Colossians was uh, and found, found the book in her Bible. So pretty similar idea, I would say. Um, the, the idea of the list is just making sure that uh, in, a, in a day where you can't just check Google or check, you know, whatever the, the lists would, would provide the clearest evidence uh, for the authoritative books uh, for the church. Okay, so one of the, obviously, the big questions uh, that comes up is, how do we get our Bible in light of this, right? So there's always, you know, the Constantine wrote the New Testament and all that kind of stuff. You've got, obviously, in Athanasius's uh, 39th Festal letter, you have a list there that everybody kind of points to and says, hey, at least by the fourth century, we definitely have a New Testament. We basically have the Old Testament canon that we have now. So talk through a little bit, just some of that diversity in the early church in terms of some of these yeah. books and lists. Yeah, probably probably one more little by one more comment about canon lists too by by way of introduction. I it's it should I it, it's not always obvious, so you have to just make sure everything's clear. The canon list, the lists occur at the end of the process of canonization. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, 
it's not as though a list was written and then, oh, now we have a canon. <laughs> right. the, the canon list uh, is, it occur, appears at the end of the process of canonization. So uh, what do I, what do I, what's some examples of this? Like, how do we know this? Well, uh, again, if I can just back up and talk about the Old Testament before the New here, because, because the New Testament tell, gives us some real clues as to what books were considered authoritative by the earliest Christians. Right. Maybe you haven't noticed it, but when you're reading your New Testament books, uh, you'll, you'll come across numerous uh, introductory formulas like as it was written or as the prophet says or as it says in the law or something like this. And, and then there's a quotation from, say, the book of Isaiah or Deuteronomy or Psalms or something like this. Well, well, pretty clearly, right, that's giving an indication that the earliest Christians thought that these books that they were quoting from, from the Old Testament, were authoritative for doctrine. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm even reminded, you know, Paul in Romans 3, verse 2, he, he says pretty clearly, you know, that the Jews have the oracles of God, right? And this is, this is a plus for them. This is a benefit, an advantage to them. They have the oracles of God. Well, not every book written by early Jews or ancient Jews was an oracle or was divinely inspired, right? Or it was at least recognized as such. There were lots of books, but the New Testament authors clearly cluster around, the citations cluster around a select mm-hmm. few, relative few books, okay? So, so when you talk about, okay, what are the books that wind up in the canon lists? What's fascinating is not all the books are cited. I want to be clear about that. Esther is never cited. Ecclesiastes never cited. Song of Songs never cited. Right? There are n- numerous books not cited, but a core Old Testament canon, or what, what eventually becomes recognized as the canon of the Old Testament, is actually cited by New Testament authors as authoritative scripture. I think that's a really important point. Um, we can look to other types of evidence, like the manuscript evidence left behind for us at Qumran, right? The, the site off the northwest corner of the Dead Sea, where probably the, the, the community of the Essenes uh, uh, lived and, and, and copied and studied scripture uh, pretty intently. Um, all the books of the Old Testament canon have been discovered there except the book of Esther. Okay, so there's a, an, another issue with Esther, but um, <clears throat> yeah, so so I don't know if this is getting to your exact question, but, but there's a process of canonization and the lists wind up at the end. The question then is, how much do these lists agree? When you say when you're coming to the Old Testament, we'll, we'll switch gears to the new here in a minute. But the Old Testament, what's fascinating is uh, based on the manuscript evidence, based on the citations, uh, based on other statements made um, about... Um, you know, the law and the prophets, right? There are these kind of restrictive type statements, you know, made in the New Testament and in other uh, ancient Jewish authors' uh, writings like Philo, for example. Um, what you have is, a, is, is clearly a, a, a refining type process, a clarifying process. We get to Josephus, the Jewish historian. He says, look, Jews now and for a long time have only had 22 books. And he talks about the five books of Moses and the 13 books of prophets. That's a little bit of an unusual number for the prophets. And then he talks about four uh, remaining books uh, for life and, and songs or hymns. Okay, so 
which most people take to be the Solomonic books and the book of Psalms. But <clears throat> most scholars don't seriously doubt that Josephus's 22 books are, are the later like recognized 22 books of the Old Testament, the Christian Old Testament. So I think that's really kind of important to show like, the, the canon lists don't fall out of the so, sort of fall out of heaven, you know, with no context or out of nowhere. There, there was clearly a long process of, of Jews and then early Christians uh, recognizing and constantly confessing and confirming which books, uh, in which books God spoke to them. Okay, so that's, that's I think, got to be laid out. Uh, before we say anything more about councils and canon lists and such. So by the time I would say, let's talk about the earliest canon lists that appear. They appear in a fellow named Melito of Sardis, uh, a, a bishop from Asia Minor uh, around 170 AD. Melito uh, clearly has in mind what the law and the prophets are. And they're basically the books that are in our Protestant Old Testament, okay, with some different numberings and that kind of thing. There's another list called the Bryennios list, <clears throat> though the manuscript it's in dates to about the ninth century. Most scholars are convinced that the tradition of the Bryennios list goes back into the second, some even say that the first century, I think that's pushing it, but at least the second century AD. First would and, be nice, you know, but second is still good, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, I think it was actually someone like Frank Moore Cross that said, why are we stopping at the second century? Why doesn't it just, why, why can't we say it just goes into the first, which yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. So, um, but the Bryennios list um, contains all the books of our Old Testament in 27 books, uh, including the book of Esther. Um, and there, again, there are no, uh, no mention of the apocryphal books or, or the later called deuterocanonical books or something like that. So, so you get this clear core Old Testament canon, it seems, in the second century, um, and that th those two early, early lists largely mirror the books in the Hebrew canon, okay? So if you're trying to think through what did, how did early Christians think through, like, criteria for canon, like, what, what is supposed to be in and what is supposed to be out and, and how would we gauge that, it does seem early on early Christians were asking the question, which oracles of God do the Jews have? Okay, from Romans 3 verse 2, it seems. And the early lists actually play this out because they, they attest that Christians are confessing that they have basically the, the books of the Hebrew canon. Now, things get a little more complicated uh, when you start to go a little bit below the surface. And then a bit later in the fourth century, when you start to compare lists, Okay, so, uh, but, but there's definitely some early soundings. So, so there's definitely a, a massive criterion for early Christianity's views of the Old Testament canon. That is what books were in the Jewish canon, okay? Because um, that's gonna be our canon, is I think the answer of most. But someone like Tertullian does actually in, the, in around 200, uh, slightly after, he actually takes issue with that. And he basically says, no, it's not really the Hebrews that decide the church's canon. It's, it's whatever scriptural book works towards our edification. Okay, that's, that's what books belong in our, our canon, okay? And, and that's different, and that's going to lead to some different conclusions. In context, Tertullian is talking about the book of Enoch, okay? Uh, and he thinks because the New Testament book of Jude cites the book of Enoch, therefore, 
uh, maybe Enoch should be in our canon because it's working towards, it's working for our edification, okay? Um, that's one way, that's one way to get at it. Um, but Tertullian is not followed by everyone. And so you have to keep in mind, there are some real live debates, okay, as, as this issue unfolds. Not much later, Origen of Alexandria, uh, talking about Enoch, you know, he, he's used Enoch favorably in some places in his writings, but in his final writings against Celsus, Origen's pretty clear that Enoch does not circulate as scripture uh, in the churches, okay? So, so he does not see it as, as functioning as canon uh, in his arguments and, and debates with, uh, with the, um, uh, the philosopher Celsus, okay? So, so I think that's, there's a lot there. there. There's differing opinions on these kinds of books. Um, and then uh, I think the, the bottom line outside uh, for a book like Enoch, Enoch never appears in any canon list, okay? Except um, what, what we might argue would be an Ethiopic translation of, of, a, of a canon list uh, from the apostolic canons, okay? They do add the book of Enoch in their translation which makes sense because the Ethiopic church probably from an early time accepted the book of Enoch into their canon. But as far as I can tell amongst all the Orthodox churches, the, Ethiop the, Ethiop the Ethiopian church is pretty unique uh, in, that, in that recognition or decision. So does that make sense? So, so we have lots yeah. of debates going on. The, the lists um, I think really do help clarify things but they can also open up some questions. So. Uh, one more before going to Nicaea, because everybody wants to talk about how Nicaea <laughs> created the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they did, of course. So. Oh, yeah, right, right. Uh, that's right. I'll, I'll put you on the straight and narrow, Brandon, by the time this episode I appreciate over, that, yeah. So. <laughs> All the, ag the aggregators are going to start putting me in blog posts saying that. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably for, for our audience, I would say probably the most important question and, and, and one that I think the list helps goes to first problematize and then answer. But, but, but the most important question is um, why, why eventually do, do say the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible differ in the books that they include uh, in the Old Testament? So, uh, so again, if you're, if you're a, a, a Protestant listener, right, your Old Testament has 39 books. Uh, if you are a Catholic listener here, your, your, your canon has 46 books because it has seven extra books, right? Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, and at this point, Baruch uh, is also treated as an individual book, okay? There's a long history. Baruch used to be a part of Jeremiah, like as one book, uh, but, but eventually Baruch is separated out and kind of becomes its own seventh deuterocanonical book in the catholic bible okay so that so there's a lot there but but what's fascinating is um when you start to trace out the history of how these bibles developed um it's neither one of them is invented whole cloth every each of them has real historical precedent okay so the, the council of uh, trent didn't didn't uh create the catholic bible right 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 <laughs> so the council of trent didn't create the catholic bible nor did Protestants take books out of the Bible, okay? Mm, so let's mm. just get rid of both of those uh, caricatures. <laughs> so, so, right, let's, if we remove those, then you can actually talk about the issues. So, so if you go all the way back to kind of some of the issues we just talked about, um, canon lists that are uh, drafted with the Hebrew canon primarily in mind. 
So I have in mind mainly authors like Jerome or Athanasius or Gregory of Nazianzus. All of these authors explicitly mention that their canon lists mirror the Hebrew canon, okay? And they don't agree in every fine detail, right? Some include Baruch, Jerome doesn't, for example. Uh, Greg, Greg Naz, I don't think mentions Baruch at all, but, but you've, got, you've got little de tiny differences on some of the books at the, far, at the edges, okay? Uh, but the, the, the overarching principle or criterion is our Bible should match the Hebrew canon, okay? But as I said earlier, folks like Tertullian, they were not, they were not on that same page. Tertullian was saying, no, the canon should mirror the books that edify us, okay? And the fruit of that type of thinking shows up in, in a massive theologian like Augustine, okay? Augustine uh, clearly expounds that principle of edification. He actually talks about the churches having books in their canon, both which they read and accept, okay? So it's not just about reading these books because all Christians read books like Tobit and Judith. That's not the issue. Augustine's very clear in, in his On Christian Teaching. This is, about the, this is about the books that the church reads and accepts, okay? Because not everybody accepts them as canonical, okay? But uh, Augustine includes all of those books in, in his canon list there in On Christian Teaching. And that's really interesting because he's, uh, he's not the first, I don't think, but he's definitely the most prominent at this point at the end of the fourth century to do this. He, he, he doesn't make distinctions between books. All the books are interwoven with, with the other kind of main uh, canonical books. And from that point on, uh, it winds up in a list by Pope Innocent I, okay? And then you kind of see these books, uh, you know, they're being received and accepted by all kinds of Latin fathers, okay? But you fast forward, to the Reformation period, and because not much happens in the Middle Ages. There's, there's not many debates. There's a few more canon lists produced, but no one thinks they've settled the canon debate between Jerome and Augustine, okay? You get to Trent, ultimately, uh, but not just Trent. There's so many little pieces. Uh, it'll astonish you, Brandon, how many Catholic, um, well, how many Catholics still promote the view of Jerome? And they explicitly say that the, the, the so-called apocryphal and deuterocanonical books are not in the canon. Yeah. Like they're outside the canon. So um, Car Cardinal Jimenez, he's probably known for his role as the Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition. When he, uh, when he sort of comments on the question, he clearly promotes the view of Jerome. And he talks about these books that don't have a Hebrew text, which are basically the Deuterocanonical books, as as books clearly ex canone. These are outside of the canon, which is astonishing to me, um, because that's only that's like I don't know thirty years from Council of Trent. Basically, you know, he'll make this this statement. The the Catholic humanist Erasmus, right, sides with Jerome still on these questions. Uh, the very famous um, um, uh, Cardinal. Uh, Cajetan, who reviews the teachings and life of Martin Luther at the Diet of Augsburg in 1518. Cardinal Cajetan argues for the narrower canon in all of his writings, not, not the wider canon that Trent eventually accepts. 
I think that's astonishing. So, so there's so many pieces to this. Uh, Trent eventually gives a decree, which includes the wider canon, the, 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 the books. But now scholars are looking kind of behind the curtain at the meeting minutes and all of the proceedings that led to those decrees. In, in the proceedings of the Council of Trent, theologians go back and forth in sessions all, uh, all over the place as to what they're going to do with the canon question. They know they're going to list the wider canon. They know they're going to list all those books, but they don't know how to talk about them. They, 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 they wonder, should we, leave, should we leave the old uh, distinction marker? That is, uh, our proto-canonical books are authoritative for doctrine, like Jerome says. And these books are simply good for edification. The, 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 the deuterocanonical books are good for edification. Should we just leave that, should we leave that distinction in there? Well, they felt like they couldn't do that. But what's really clear from all of the parties involved, according to the minutes and, and, and the re records of the proceedings and sessions, is that the Council of Trent never thought it was deciding the long-standing debate between Augustine and Jerome. They never thought they were doing that. And yet I read their decree and go, well, it seems like they sided with Augustine pretty clearly. But actually, behind the curtain, they, uh, they, they were not. Um, yeah, that a lot of a lot of conversations about that, and it's it's interesting. Yeah. You were you and I talked about this before, uh, in our now uh, long lost recording. Um, but uh, you know that the Council of Trent was was the most easily probably the most uh, well documented um, council in church history. I mean, you have uh, the Secretary Massarelli who puts this together, and in fact, for what four or five hundred years, it just sits open in a library where people are consulting it and touching it and moving it around and totally all this kind of stuff. And then yep. we come back to it later and we're like, oh, you know, if if we had had all this access early and people had spent some more time with it, uh, it's not to say the Reformation wouldn't have happened, but certainly there's right. some interesting conversations about Protestant Catholic yeah. relations there. Totally. I, I, I would agree. That's right. So so Trent, in some ways, is probably the closest example you have to a council uh determining a canon for somebody okay yeah. that's important because when you when you now scroll back let's go all the way back to 327 a.d in the council of nicaea and uh lots of people now ask thanks to dan brown's da vinci code right and these sorts yep. of things the last time i checked dan brown's numbers brandon which would have been sometime early last year, that book is well over 82 million dollars, 82 million copies sold. Okay, so that that is in the air. Um, I'll confess, I, I go on to Twitter sometimes and I just put in the search on Twitter, like Nicaea, Canon, and these sorts of things. And without fail, within 48 hours, somebody has tweeted about how Nicaea has created the Bible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I show my students the clip from uh, from Da Vinci Code, where he basically says, you know, that, that Constantine invented the Bible and, oh, uh, yeah. you know, they made Mary Magdalene look bad and all the rest, you know, and I show it to him after we've gone through Irenaeus and Origin and some of these conversations, and they're like, oh, yeah, that is silly. Now that's now right. You know, that that's I listen right. to it. Totally. And, and it's funny, I'll talk to people and they'll be like, Da Vinci Code, I've never read the Da Vinci Code. I'm like, yes, but based on the question you just asked, that book has influenced you for farther than you know. Like, yep. you don't realize just how much of that air you breathe. So, so when it comes down to Nicaea and creating the Bible, the, the answer, I think, is actually kind of simple. Um, there's no evidence yeah. uh, of the canon ever being discussed uh, at Nicaea. I think that's, that's the first point. Um, you get little snippets 
uh, in Jerome's preface uh, that he writes for the books of Tobit and Judith, and he talks about how Judith might have been discussed uh, as the rest of the scriptures were, something like this. I think all that means is that Judith was referenced at Nicaea at one point or another, uh, but, but in no way is Jerome talking about that there was a full-blown discussion of the canon uh, and some kind of decision made about the canon uh, uh, at Nicaea. But the best evidence for it is that there were debates about the book of Revelation, okay, all the way through. Yeah. And um, the book of Revelation was debated before 327, and it was also debated afterwards. So, for example, Athanasius, when listing his 27 books of the New Testament, he includes Revelation. But, but Cyril of Jerusalem, some, I don't know, 20, 30 years earlier, doesn't okay and in fact the greek orthodox church really never accepts revelation if you look at it it's pretty astonishing uh i don't think it appears in the in the liturgy uh to this day so it, it it's copied in the manuscripts uh but again manuscripts don't equal canon okay and so so there's still some some real debate i think amongst the greek orthodox about the place of revelation when it's copied uh, oftentimes, Revelation is, is copied on its own. It's actually not even copied uh, in the majority of cases with the rest of the New Testament books, okay? So it's, it's got its own kind of special scribal history, uh, and it's got its own, yeah, it's got a very special reception history. I mean, it's, it, which is only fitting for a special book like Revelation. Yes, actually. such a special <laughs> book. Um, well, so it's interesting, as, you, as you're saying all this too, you know, you've got you look at Irenaeus and in against heresies, he quotes like, you know, he lists like 21 or quotes at least 21 of the 27. You've got Origen who basically lays them all out. And then he'll say, you know, some debate second Peter, some debate the epistles of John. So That's you've right. got a little bit of conversation there. Obviously we talked a little bit about these other books, you know, Athanasius in his festal letter says wisdom of Solomon and Sirach and Esther and Judith and Tobit. And some of these are edifying, but not scripture. That's so right. when we go through this uh, history that you've laid out so well, um, would you just say it's as simple as there's some agree to disagree among the fathers and that's fine? Or do you think that there's a little bit more clarity than we realize? Either we don't have record of it, or is there something you've seen that'll say, hey, actually, the, the 66 that we have now pretty much always been the case. How would you work? Yeah, this okay. So let's back up here. Um, when you, if you're really going to dissect the New Testament, you, there are, there are sub-collections for the New Testament. I think we can talk about like the four Gospels, Acts general epistles, um, the Pauline letter collection, and, and the book of Revelation. Okay, does that, so I think scholars now are looking, okay, yes, Athanasius in 367 is the very first time all those books are listed as canonical, okay? But then scholars say, well, then that means that's, maybe that's the first time that we had a canon or something like this. Okay, well, that's, a little, that's not quite right. Um, now we can at least date Origen's Sermon on Joshua 7.1. It also, there's a little bit of a textual issue as to whether that list originally included Revelation or not, but, but that little thing aside, it now would be the earliest list of all 27 books. Okay, so that's, that's around 250 AD. All right, so we've, we've really pushed that down. But, but most scholars are saying, that's not really the point anymore. It's, it's when did these sub-collections come together? because Athanasius would never have thought he was doing something innovative. He would never have thought, hey, yeah, I'm just, I'm just inventing the canon here, you know, right. like this is what I, I, 
pay attention to what comes off my pen, you know? Like that's that's not at all where he's at. I think he thinks these these sub collections, these subunits have been with us for centuries by the time he writes. And I'm just I'm just recording everything that's come down to us. So the earliest evidence for the four gospels is Irenaeus, right? And, and, and uh, his Against Heresies, uh, book three. It's pretty clear uh, he thinks the church has and could only have four gospels. Now, of course, there's a little prehistory even to Irenaeus, right? Because there are, there are other gospels, right? I'm sure many of our listeners have heard about the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Mary or, or Judas, right? These kinds of books. Yes, they existed. They circulated. Um, it's hard to it's hard to to find any Christian on record say yes we've accepted them into our canon. Just doesn't doesn't happen. What you do get is someone like Origen who says I've read them all. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, verse or chapter one one to four, confesses that many have tried to write gospels, and so Origen says, look, we should expect that there are a lot of gospels out there. But the church has only ever had the four Gospels, okay, which I think is really interesting. Uh, so Origen is more of a scholar, right? He's like, look, I've read everything. <laughs> I'm not saying everything is, is valuable, but I've read everything. And at times he does make positive use of sayings in these Gospels. But at no point do I see Origen ever saying, but, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, we all know that's inspired, right? Like he just never, like, makes that kind of claim. So, um, so, so the four Gospels, I think, are established from a really early time, okay? They were, competitor, they were, comp, they were competitors uh, in some ways, but, but the church is by and large except the four Gospels, okay? By, by the same time, roughly the same time, Tertullian in Book 5 of Against Marcion is telling us that Marcion uh, edited not only the text of Paul's letters, but he edits the number. He even shrinks the number of 13 or 14 epistles, right, depending on Hebrews, 13 or 14 epistles down to 10, okay? So, so in Tertullian's mind, Marcion, around 150, actually trims the Pauline collection, okay, that was already established. I realize, as you know, there, there are debates about all these questions, but in terms of the Orthodox's testimony about these things, um, they're pretty early. So we're talking like right around 200 here with Tertullian. The book of Acts, to my knowledge, is, is never disputed. It's in all, it appears in all the canon lists. Uh, no, no, no issues there. Um, the general epistle, well, the general epistles in Revelation are the trickiest, but let's start with Revelation real quick. Revelation is accepted by all in the earliest period, it seems to me. It's not until a Dionysius, uh, Bishop of Alexandria, uh, at the, mm, uh, I want to say like, um, uh, middle to end of third century, okay, uh, starts to say, well, was it John the Apostle that wrote Revelation? Okay, he, he's the first to ask that question. Eusebius picks up, on the, picks up on that point, and Eusebius will then eventually list Revelation as either amongst the genuinely accepted books or, or the disputed books, okay? All right, so, so Revelation has a, has a pretty kind of sorted history. Where I think the, the most fruitful work can be done on some of these questions, though, is, say, the, the small general epistles, sometimes called Catholic epistles. Okay, this, th these are the seven books, right? James, First, uh, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude. Okay, what do we do with these? 
they're very small. So you've already referenced some of the places where Origen says, well, we know Peter wrote one letter. There's a second one that circulates, but it's, a, but it's doubted. Okay. Um, the same thing happens with John's letters. Everybody knows first John's authentic, but what about second and third? There's a little bit of dispute as to whether he writes them. What's interesting is, is whether he writes them or not. It seems that they're always circulating together. Okay, that doesn't seem like um, that they're that that they're somehow very detached. Like the fact that he talks about a first John then leads him to now talk about a second and a third, or or first and second Peter, same thing. Jude origin shows the church accepts Jude from a really early time, yeah. and James is accepted from a pretty early time. Okay, so it really is that second Peter and second third John that are sticking points. Okay. The very first time the seven Catholic letters are, are, are noted is in Eusebius's writings around 300 AD. Um, and he, he doesn't talk about them as canonical, but he does talk about that collection as circulating amongst all the churches publicly, I think is the language he uses. So he doesn't talk about them as canon precisely because Eusebius, the historian, knows what Origen said about some of the disputes but he is helpful because he is saying all the churches have these books. <laughs> so, so even a little bit later in his, on, in his church history, he's going to say, well, this one's, you know, none of these are fully accepted um, or, or they're, they're disputed. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems that all the churches have already accepted them uh, into their canon. Okay. So, all the manuscripts have them. It, it's hard to uh, find real reasons for us, especially today, to doubt the authenticity of the seven general epistles, I would say. Okay. Um, hope I'm being fair to all the evidence here on the spot. But uh, they're, the last, they're the last to be canonized. And if your definition of canon is a closed type canon, mm -hmm. okay, then, then I think we do need to take the, the late reception of all seven letters seriously, which means you're probably looking at a very late or fourth or early fourth century like closure to the New Testament canon. Okay, precisely because it doesn't, we just don't have the evidence that explicitly says, "Hey, we've got all 27 books before this." Now, again, you do have Origin around 250, so there there are there are some clear pieces that way, but yeah. Um, it's, it's fuzzy. I want to use the word fuzzy on, yeah. on that. Yeah. Well, the, the circulation is interesting too, because, um, yeah, it's not yeah. like second Peter was found in a cave somewhere in the fourth century. And all of a sudden people started talking about it, you know, even, um, you know, yeah. Clement of Rome, if you take him in the late first century, he quotes second Peter. So you have, you right. have somebody in the first century already, at least quoting it. Now you don't have a canon list from Clement. Um, but you at least have somebody using, actually, I think he uses revelation as well. Uh, Clement does at least quotes them as though they are at the very least authoritative, perhaps maybe just edifying, but he doesn't go out of his way to clarify that. So um, that's an interesting conversation too, about even how some of these early guys are quoting some of these books, right? Some, even in the uh, apostolic fathers and stuff like that. So, um, so how would you talk through some of that in terms of just some of the quotes, right? Because obviously shepherd of Hermas shows up and others right. show up being quoted and things like that. Athanasius again, has a pretty clear distinction there. Yeah, that's um, good. Is, is there anything to yeah. be said about some of those kind of things as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so moving beyond just the um, the twenty seven books, right? When did they kind of crystallize, come together? Okay. Now, how do we talk about 
the wide world of literature, right? Early Christians read a lot. It's, I mean, just given the remains of the manuscripts and yeah. the books, they read a lot. One of the more popular ones is called the Shepherd of Hermas, okay? The Shepherd uh, is part of a, of a corpus later deemed the, Aposto uh, the Apostolic Man, the name is Apostolic it. Fathers, yeah. Thank you, Apostolic <laughs> Fathers. Yeah, oh, goodness gracious, the Apostolic Fathers. Um, but it, its manuscript attestation in the second and third centuries is, is astounding. Over 20 copies of this book remain. Contrast that with, say, three copies or remains of copies of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so that just gives us maybe some idea that, that, that The Shepherd is an extremely popular work at this time. Even someone like Origen might even say, hey, I think the book's divinely inspired. But later in his career, Origen says, now if someone accepts that the shepherd is inspired or something. So he, he, he very much backs off that a little bit, but he recognizes canon's not a question of, of what he thinks. Canon is a question of what the churches are uh, deeming to be canon, okay? Right. So, so Origen has a personal opinion on the shepherd. Uh, the rest of the churches are not on board. Okay, with his opinion, but how do we? So how do we deal with that? How do we? How do we talk about a book like The Shepherd, who some can say and think is divinely inspired? They can even quote it as scripture. Okay, and yet in no single canon list from early Christianity is The Shepherd ever listed amongst the canonical books. This is a wonderful case study in thinking through early views of canon and scripture. So. Here's, here's how I've put it together so far, Brandon. You let me know. But you've got uh, the shepherd um, <clears throat> as, uh, as clearly a popular work. It's clearly being read. It's clearly, being, it's clearly orthodox, even. It's cited. But for some reason, the book is never included in the canon. The, cannot, the, 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 um, the canon lists are the canon. The manuscripts and the citations only indicate a pop the popularity of a work uh, or even the usefulness of a work. Athanasius will put it like this. Here are the canonical books. And he lists all 27 books. And then he says there are some that are outside here that are, that are, that are able to be read. And he lists the shepherd amongst those works. These are works that are helpful for new converts, he says. But uh, they're not... Uh, canonized. They're not canonical. They're not books that are that are that are um, uh, efficient for establishing doctrine. Okay, I think is his point. But there's no doubt that Athanasius, because he sets things up this way, Athanasius would have no problem with the Shepherd of Hermas being included in a in a manuscript, including a lot of books. Okay. So we have a codex like Sinaiticus that has all 27 New Testament books, and then it has the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas coming after the Book of Revelation, right? It fits the, it fits the, um, the description I'm giving. You've got the canonical books, and then you've got these other books that are outside but are still considered useful, and some early Christians would still refer to them as scripture, okay? That's, that's how important they were, I would say. But they're not as important as the canonical books. All right, so that's that's one way of of looking at this. Um, some have tried to say, well, you just have competing canons, this kind of thing. I think that's that's kind of ridiculous because again, not a single canon list, not even Origen's own canon list, 
includes the shepherd of Hermas. Yep. So, I don't know that. So that might be one way to talk about it. Again, lots of other books like this, very popular for a time, mm-hmm. but not ultimately deemed or or recognized to be divinely inspired or where God has spoken to to the church. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the Dead Sea uh, discovery, for example, and you know, First Enoch is one of those ones you've mentioned a few times. That's very popular, and you know, I. I had to do some get as work in my dissertation on first Enoch because that's what is left. That's what survives. Uh, but that's an inter- That's another interesting case study in Old Testament, right? Because um, you know, I, one one scholar I always forget who it was says that first Enoch was more is more popular now than it was uh, you know in the first century. I don't know how true or not that is, but you know, you you find that library and you're like, oh, this is great. We've got this full Isaiah scroll and we've got all these Old Testament books. And then First Enoch, there's a bunch of those there. Well, it could just be the case that that group really likes First Enoch, but not everybody does, right? I mean, there's, there's so many things that can go into that. So um, how do we, as Christians, we, we have all these manuscripts and all these books and all these things that are laying around here that you're talking about, and some of these questions about what's scripture and what's not. How would you encourage a, a believer, a pastor, a layperson who asks these questions and is trying to work through these issues? How do we know that the Bible we have is the Bible that we should have? Um, how do we know that we can trust what's been handed down to us? And what are some of the kind of just big advice you'd give on that? Yeah, great. The books that we have are, um, are clearly the books that all Christians everywhere have received. The question is whether we should receive more books. Hmm. Um, the, the only, I guess, I guess I'd have to qualify that at one point, I, you know, because there are some regional canons, again, like we've talked about, don't include the book of Revelation, okay? Don't, don't, or maybe don't include some of the, uh, general epistles, the more disputed ones. Uh, I'm thinking of the Syriac church there. But, but I guess my, my point here is um, if, I'm, if I'm a pastor walking someone through this, I want to say, first of all, it's a bit messy, at least from our vantage point. Mm-hmm. But we need to acknowledge that, that providence, right? God's providence is at work in preserving uh, his scriptures for us. This is an ancient idea, even origin who I feel like knew all of the issues firsthand, not just about which books are in or out, but about uh, the wording that, that is found in different books. I mean, you know, he saw all the difficulties and yet could say, but Providence has given us what we have. And I thought, wow, that's, that's an interest. That's a great perspective. And, and again, you know, Society of Biblical Literature isn't going to bring that perspective in very often, right? So, uh, but, but here we are as Christians, trying to work through these issues, it's helpful to know that Christians many, many, many centuries ago saw the same issues, okay? In other words, these issues don't sort of dislodge the faith, okay? In fact, I think it sets up a faith-seeking understanding paradigm. I think we trust even as we continue to learn and continue to sort out uh, the difficulties of some of these issues. Okay, so that might be the first place uh, I would start. And, and second, I would just, once you do that, once you do that, you realize the books in your Bible have been recognized as divinely inspired for as long as Christians have been talking about this matter. Okay, I think that's, that's really the bottom line. Uh, this canon that we have was not decided uh, by, by several bishops, even at an ecumenical council like Nicaea. The canon that we have is the one that was continually and regular, regularly used and recognized from the church's earliest days, okay? It was not formally recognized until a, a, a bit later, right, than Jesus. But it's pretty clear that these books are the ones that 
the, that Christians uh, keep coming back to. Okay, keep coming back. There were other gospels. There were other there were other apocalypses. There were other epistles out there. Uh, many of them good, and yet it's fascinating to me that if it was just kind of a power play between you know the orthodox and the and the you know later called heretics and these sorts of like if it was just that. I can't explain why the book of the shepherd of Hermas doesn't make it into the canon because the book checks all the boxes orthodox wise. It really does support uh, what the canonical books teach, you see. So, so I just, I'm thinking to myself, if it was this sort of big power play, it doesn't really explain why some of these books like the shepherd don't make it into the canon because they would fit the program. Okay. But they don't, okay, at the end of the day. And I think that's because tradition goes back further than some of these power plays, okay? Yeah. And, I, and I think um, ultimately what we have is in Athanasius and others is a statement that I take at face value. These are the books we've received. Mm -hmm. These are simply the books we've received. And uh, so anyways, I, that's, that was, is kind of how I would approach the question uh, from a pastoral vantage point. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's a part of Irenaeus' point too, right? When he's arguing against the Gnostics, he's like, These are the, this is what the apostles gave us. This is what we got from those before us. You know, he's like, hey, I know Polycarp. I know, Poly I know, you know, I know John sort of through Polycarp as like a grandson of the faith. And so yeah, exactly. it seems as, as that early, I mean, in the second century, they're already saying, hey, no, 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 we, we actually already know who the apostles are and we know what they left us. That's right. Okay, let's move into kind of finish up here. We've brought up Origin a lot. Uh, you did some work on Origins, uh, fragments of Job from the Hexapla. Um, he is, I think, you know, maybe the most obvious, earliest uh, Christian text critic who's really doing a lot of work in languages and word studies and all this kind of stuff. You got the Hexapla with his different Hebrew and Greek translations. Um, so talk a little bit about Origin as a text critic and sort of how he's working through these issues, because there's a lot of things I think we can glean about the early church from his hexapla, his tetrapla, and all this kind of stuff that he's doing. Yeah. Okay. There's, well, there's a lot there. Um, so, so Origen uh, grew up um, in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, and it's pretty clear from Eusebius and other sources about him that he, he received a, an education in grammar or grammatica, uh, and that that is a, a, an education in philology on its way to philosophy, but he had to, he had to learn how to read. He had to learn uh, how to edit texts, okay? Bef like on the way to grand philosophizing and theologizing and all of that. Again, Origen's probably most famously known for his, his philosophical and theological contribution. But as you've, as you've kind of summarized uh, in the question, Origen is, is the first uh, Christian on record applying Hellenistic Greek grammarian philological principles to copies of the scriptures. Okay, he's, he's the first to do this um, uh, in any serious way, I'll say. But he, he grows up in Alexandria. Uh, I think he's aware of different readings of the Old Testament scriptures. He has access to different copies Right. So remember, in those days, not everybody's pulling up uh, Bible, Bible Gateway, right, and getting access to all these translations and such. But Origen has access to different copies of different books of the Bible, and he notices some differences. I think he might have some indication 
of how the Jews, for example, were reading their Hebrew scriptures in Greek, okay, at, during his time in Alexandria. But he's born around 180, 185. He dies around 255. And around 232, Origen moves from Alexandria to Caesarea. Uh, and there's no doubt that it's at this stage he runs into massive debates with the Jews living in his in, in, or, or in the community that he's in. And lots of questions are arising, like, for example, who has the correct copy of the scriptures? That's a fundamental question when you think about it. Uh, it's one that that's a question that surfaces today. Uh, text critics answer the, the question quite similarly to how Origen did centuries ago. Origen attacks this question by assembling all of the extant Bibles or editions of the Bible that are out there. And he puts them in six columns where he can compare them word by word in something that's called the hexapla. Hex meaning six, pla meaning fold. The six-fold Bible or the six-columned Bible. Had a Hebrew text with Hebrew letters, that same Hebrew text with Greek letters, or what we would call a transcription or a transliteration. And then the four prominent Greek versions of the same scriptures, uh, Aquila, Symmachus, the Septuagint in column five, and Theodotion in column six. There were probably some other editions uh, uh, for other books like the Psalms uh, that he simply called the fifth and sixth editions. Okay. That's the general orientation. Why, again, why do you do this? You do it because there's been that, that this question's been asked to you ad nauseum. <laughs> why does my copy of Job not match this copy of Job? Why does this copy of Jeremiah not match this copy of Jeremiah? What's going, and then who's right? Right, that's the other question, who's right? Well, Origen plotted all this out in the hexapla as sort of phase one, because he was, he was I think, had in mind a fully corrected text of the Septuagint, um, call, uh, which eventually is called the Tetrapla or the fourfold version. I'll come back to that in a second. But this text would have been would have looked more like any sort of ancient manuscript you've ever seen. It had it had a dominant text on the page, and then it had readings in the margin. The dominant text on the page was largely the Septuagint or the Greek scriptures uh, for, of the church, well, of the Jews originally, but then received by the church. But not pure and simple, and this is where people get, I think, um, they, 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 it gets confusing. Origen, as a grammarian, he was very clear to track uh, the corrections that he made. So, for example, he used two signs, one called an asterisk, uh, that, that sign looks pretty similar to the asterisk that, that we know today, like a little star, okay? And then he used an obelisk or like a, a straight horizontal line. With, uh, sometimes the Greeks compare it to like a javelin or a lance, right? A very straight rod, okay? And um, the, the, the asterisk marked text that Origen added to the Septuagint. So he was, he was making corrections to the text of the church, but he was using the asterisk to show what lines he had added via the Hebrew or via Aquilostimicus or Theodosian, you see. There's a very famous part of Jeremiah 17, verses 1 to 4. So it's a large section. It's not found in the, in the original Septuagint. 
but it was in the Hebrew. And we know from commentators and manuscripts that Origen added those verses back in in Greek. And it actually played a theological role, too, because it, it, these are famous verses for, for those who may not know. It's, it's, it's about, Ju about Judas in many people's minds. It's actually a prophecy uh, about who would betray the Messiah. But that's, that's another issue. <laughs> but Origen adds those verses back in because what he thinks uh, is going on is that the Greek text originally matched the Hebrew. But lazy scribes and corrupt scribes actually removed verses and so so he needed to add them back in so that the hebrew and the greek text actually matched each other okay he also used this obelisk this javelin to show lines that were in the greek but not in the hebrew okay so at times greek translators like our translations today they become expansive and they add words okay to in order to explain or or help the original meaning of the text come across. Well, Origen found those places and he actually marked them with, with these obola, okay? So very painstaking work, Brandon and the rest. But what that did is it gave the, the, the churches and scholars of the church a very accurate representation of what was in the church's copies and what were in the Jews' copies yeah. of the day, okay? And for, for Origen's purpose, I think he says, look, I think we've, got, we've gotten back to the Hebrew text. This tells us what was in the Hebrew, you see, because now, now we can tell what I've added. So I've not, I've not omitted lines, and the lines that I've added, I've made very clear by the, the use of these asterisks. So, um, so painstaking work, but that means Origen was well acquainted with all of the differences and, and difficulties uh, that the manuscripts themselves presented. And uh, rather than him sort of saying, well, I guess the Bible's a, you know, a lost cause or something <laughs> like this. We'll never know where God speaks. No, no, no. He, he just sort of works methodically as a critic, you see, yeah. and, and actually tries to correct the errors in the copies so that he can try to get back to what the original version of that book would have looked like. Yeah, that, it is interesting with with Origen. You know, I, I tend to be a little bit of a defender of Origen with his allegory because one, I've read uh, Origen. Uh, yeah. and I, I don't defend everything, obviously, all of his interpretations, but it is interesting when you, a lot of times when you see him doing allegorical type things, he's actually doing word studies, you know? So it's like, it's like sometimes really bad word studies. It's like when we tell our students don't do a word study because it can confuse you. He does that sometimes, but it is interesting how actually attached to the text Origen is, even if we don't like what he does with it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But, but we don't have to get into an origin uh, theology today. But um, <laughs> but it is interesting. I think he's such a good test case because not just because of the, the false narratives about him, I think, but just watching somebody that early going, we care about the text that we have. We care about what what is being preached and what is being taught. And we care yeah. about uh, accuracy. And, and he's a, such a good example of oh. probably what a lot of people are doing that we don't have record of. Totally. Yeah, I would agree. Caesarea. So the, the Texan Canon Institute did a, a colloquium on origin as philologist mm -hmm. uh, back in November. And we, we assembled uh, 10, 11 international scholars in Septuagint, uh, Old Testament textual criticism, patristics even. Um, and we got together for two full days and shared and discussed papers on, on origin and what we thought he was doing. Um, it, it's, it's astonishing the level of question that can come up, but 
uh, I was encouraged by this colloquium because I, I think um, there's now a, a forming consensus amongst folks uh, on a couple points, but Caesarea is the center of all this activity. And there, there were other Christian pockets like in Antioch and others doing similar types of things, but it's, a, it's amazing to me the impact that the textual scholarship at Caesarea had on the early church. It's, it's, I, I still don't, I still don't think we quite know the extent of it. It's, it's, a, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, even to someone like Jerome and, and whatever, it just gets, it, it's a massive undertaking that happened with Origen and then Pamphilus and then Eusebius and others, lots happening. Um, and then the other, the other piece of consensus I will say that I think was forming is the hexapla is no longer being thought of as the main event. Hmm. It, it'll always be kind of considered the monstrosity, um, but, but it really was phase one in Origen's textual project. And so the hexapla led to what's called the tetrapla. That would be a text that would be more portable. It, it, would, it would be a text of all the Old Testament, but in like four notebooks or four small codices, you could fit the whole thing in. And, uh, and then you would have the corrected text with signs, those asterisks and obli, and then the readings of the Jewish revisers, Aquilus, Simicus, and Theodosian at key places in the margin. And, uh, and what that would do for someone is fill out not only what the text was, so you can see like Eusebius later in his commentary on Isaiah, he's following this text. He's actually telling us places where the obelisk shows up and where the asterisk shows up. And he's, and he's commenting and, inter and interpreting accordingly. The Hebrew text, man, it just had a lot of impact on, on these guys. And then, then he's able to also cite those readings from Aquila, Simicus, and Theodosian because they were in the margins uh, of these manuscripts as well. And so... Uh, that rounded out the exegesis. There are times, there are times where someone like Eusebius will read with a Jewish translator, a, a known Jewish translator, over and against the Septuagint version of the church, and that, and he will do so because the Jewish reviser better represents the Hebrew text. Okay, so, so that. I'm still trying to unpack some of these things. There's, there's a lot of narratives out there about how the Septuagint, you know, is the dominant Bible. And, and there, that's true. But there are these, uh, I don't want to call them outliers, but there are these other voices uh, like Eusebius that we simply don't, we, we're not very conversant with, I would say. So. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You know, uh, Athanasius and, and Gregory and some of these talk about their indebtedness to origin. And I think a lot of that is obviously theological and some of it's Trinity and some other things. Uh, but there is something about the, uh, like that, that's an interesting study, right? Is like how much access do they have to his text critic stuff as well, right? Like his, I mean, obviously Eusebius does. Um, if Eusebius is by any stretch, some sort of a local historian and, and somebody who's really considered to be an authority, the extent to which that origin philology and grammarian work that he does uh, it'd be interesting to see a really good case study on that. I don't know if it exists. I haven't come across it in my research, but that would be a really fascinating study. Yeah, a few more are coming out, I think. So yeah. that's good. Yeah. good. yeah. All right. Well, John, thanks for thanks for all this. It was really helpful. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing a round yeah. two, even though the first one didn't work out. You're a very kind <laughs> and gracious person. So. Yeah. No worries, Brandon. Thanks for having me.